What you're about to hear is a podcast called the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue. Today's guest prefers to remain anonymous, as you may have noticed from the episode title. John Doe is not his real name. Today's guest escaped a cult-like family environment and found a new lease on life by following his intuition and trusting the synchronicities that arrived when he finally took his steps towards emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual freedom. The Synchro Wisdom Dialogue is a podcast that I do for supporters only. You can find every single episode on Patreon. And if you go to our Ko-Fi store or the Linktree link in the description, you can find yourself as a guest right here on the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue. This episode was so impactful that I decided it would make its way to the main feed here right now as you're listening. So enjoy this conversation with John Doe and consider supporting the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast on Patreon and you'll get access to every episode of the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue along with all of the hundreds of bonus episodes I've done over the past two years from Illuminati Confirmed to the scene and everything else in between. All right, so without further ado, I present to you Synchro Wisdom Dialogue number six with John Doe. get right into it brother welcome to the synchro wisdom dialogue you know who i am i don't know who you are please tell us tell us a little bit about yourself sounds good so i don't know who's responsible for it but i i think whoever came up with the idea of putting autism on the spectrum instead of just saying you are or you're not was really smart in doing that and that it should apply maybe to more types of mental health because the idea of the spectrum, you're not seeing in or out and you're classifying things in terms of a scale more so. And I actually worked with some people diagnosed bipolar and there's like different levels to their bipolar behavior. You're around someone that goes into modes of depression. They might not be diagnosed as that. It really seems like the diagnoses are, are meant for the sake of prescribing medication and so that they're legally back for their prescribing of medication. But I think that should be applied to other things in life too. I think we get stuck in really dualistic type of thinking where it's in or out. All this to say, I the easiest way to kind of describe the way that I was raised and my early life is that I grew up in a cult. And so people are like, which cult? Maybe I know of it or I know someone that's been in it. So technically, maybe it's not classified as a cult, but I I think it's a similar thing that maybe it should be on a scale and every organization has some level of cult-like behavior, whether it's controlling, coercing, requiring payment, sexual repression or oppression. But if I were to put the movement that I grew up in, it might be like a six or seven and maybe it tapered down over time to like a four. But early in my childhood, it was, it was very intense. And my parents are pastors. My cousins are pastors. 
And I ended up becoming a pastor myself. I was in Bible college at age 14, already taking college courses and doing like independent study. So my childhood was really odd and and different. I've come to terms with that and really appreciate aspects of it, but it's definitely give and take. And there are some things that were very weird about the way that I was raised and grew up definitely with a huge fear of hell. And I was always afraid that like if I do the wrong thing, I'm either going to go to hell or get demon possessed or something terrible is going to happen. But I ended up never even dating anyone or like having a girlfriend until I was 25. Or, and the first person I hooked up with, I married and then ended up having kids with her and was ended up being a pastor in my parents' church. And things got really rough, like in that kind of environment. And I had trouble just being myself and didn't believe in the same things and wasn't really allowed to voice that. And things got really rough between me and my ex-wife. And she started like spreading rumors about me and like saying that I I was having affairs, which I wasn't. And one day I, I just broke and I was like, you know what? Like, if you're saying all this about me, and I have to catch a flack of it. Like I might as well actually have fun. And so like I, I just after months of like her putting us through marriage counseling and my parents coming after me and sending pastors to meet with me and all this, I just drove to TJ and went to a strip club. And I'm sitting there having a taco. And I turn next to me and there's my dad sitting next to me in, in Tijuana. He had chased me down and found me. And So I was like, I just can't do it anymore. I can't do this life. I can't go back to my wife. I can't live this way anymore. Like, I I don't like what has happened. I feel trapped in it and I feel claustrophobic. And my brother was actually filming a a movie in Puerto Rico. And Mel Gibson was in the movie. And he's like, come out and see me in Puerto Rico. I was like for sure. Like, I'll come out and see you. So I I go out to Puerto Rico and hang out on set. And I end up getting a job with the lead actress as her stylist, because my my background involves a lot of like luxury women's fashion. It's like a life passion of mine. So I I come back and I'm I'm working that job and trying to figure out life again. My ex-wife had closed the bank accounts and emptied them. And so I came back to no money and was able to kind of figure things out for a while. But then my parents kept coming after me, trying to cast demons out of me and saying that I was doing something terrible by not wanting to be in the marriage and not wanting to be a pastor. Ended up living in my car for three months and kind of losing everything. All my friends wouldn't talk to me anymore, didn't have a relationship with my family. But then I I read this book and called Whole Again by this author, Jackson McKenzie. And for the first time, learned unconditional self-love and just idea of self-love and the church I grew up in would have been thought of as this so humanistic and Eastern religion. You're going to get demon possessed if you believe in that kind of stuff. But I was happy for the first time in my life, living in my car with no money. I would, I would work during the day as a janitor and then not even have a place to shower. And I was sleeping in the car as close to my 
ex-wife's house as possible so I could still see my kids. But that just broke something off of me. And like, I, I felt like I wasn't worrying so much about what other people thought and felt about me. I wasn't assuming that as my own responsibility anymore, but letting them have their thoughts and feelings and not living with those day in and day out. And sort of this journey of kind of getting over the fear of hell, which took a few years and a few psychedelic trips. But my dad ended up getting cancer. And this is like at the start of COVID and his pancreatic cancer. So I ended up repairing the relationship with my parents. And and between then and now, like we've really realized that the marriage that I was in wasn't something that was healthy or something that I should have stayed in. My my ex-wife has moved on. I'm really happy for her. She's got a boyfriend now and they just purchased a home that they're moving into. And I'm, I'm careful to not say anything negative about her to the kids because that's just poisoning the kids and helping my ex get sick kind of thing. But I have developed this really strong distaste for things that aren't real or lies or things that aren't true and lies from the government or lies from the CDC or lies about what our history is. I've, I've been really intrigued in going back to a lot of stuff because I used to be a theology professor or theology professor. And I used to teach about the Nephilim and say that, Oh, that's just bad exegesis. Whenever someone's saying that they were like the spawn of, of angels and humans, like angels can't copulate with humans. But now going back to all that and saying, what does this text actually mean? And coming across the likes of Zachary Sitchin and coming across these ideas about the the Council of Nicaea and, and how really it you could draw the storyline that the Roman Empire was just trying to assert political control when they canonized scripture and made it the official religion. And I've, I've just been examining all these things, and it's really drawn me into some pretty incredible life experience. Like, I'm thankful for how I grew up at this point, because the last three years have been such a joy to discover these kinds of mysteries, and even to have some experiences with psilocybin, and how enriching those experiences have been, and to be kind of on this spiritual journey of discovering new stuff. So that's kind of the quick synopsis there. Yeah, that's quite a synopsis there. Jeez, man, I I, uh, I appreciate you reaching out, and I appreciate you sharing that. So what what state did you grow up in? I, I don't think I caught that. Where, where are you from? Because you went down to TJ, so I'm going to guess you're in the southwest, but I could be wrong. Yeah, so I'm, I'm located in San Diego. So okay. I, was, I was born in the northwest, born in Portland, and then was in Seattle and toes like 12. And then my parents started a church down here when I was 12 and been here off and on since then. Very interesting. So you were in school, college at 14, were you mainly studying, I mean, exclusively theology? It was it was restricted to that, given that it was such a, I don't know if it was an extreme, extremist sect, but you called it a cult. So I'll, I'll go ahead and take, right. a, take a guess that you were probably around some pretty 
devout people, were you exclusively learning like things that now you would maybe consider like sort of dogmatic or maybe like brainwashing? Like what what part of your Christian like education ha- has stuck with you and what part of that uh, have you discarded? Yeah, so that, I mean, that whole thing is a huge process and takes a lot of time to dismantle. And it's it's really put into your subconscious. It's not just in your conscious mind. And so it's easy to kind of change some beliefs here and there, but to actually unroot some of that stuff, like the fear of health stuff, like I was saying, it, it took me a few years to get through. So the college that I, I was in um, when I was 14, yeah, it was strictly theology. And kind of a good sign that you're in a cult is if they celebrate indoctrination. And they make that this, this beautiful thing and amplify. And that's kind of what was done in the movement that I grew up in. So all the courses were biblical-based. And so the course would be like Life of Christ or Old Testament Survey, New Testament Survey, based on books of the Bible, or, or there was one called Basic Doctrine, which was always their favorite class, which they went through all the core tenets of Christian doctrine and told you what to believe. It wasn't like, here's what the Bible says, and here are some interpretations. It was like, no, this is what we believe, and this is what you now believe. So it, it was definitely forced ed. And, and pretty intense. So whenever I went through my separation and, and really it was death and rebirth experience, leaving that environment, leaving that marriage, I felt like I had to give up everything to get out and to start a new life and to figure out an, a new way. But mm. I've, I've been over that process, really loosely holding beliefs. I've been recruited to, maybe I look like an easy mark now, but been recruited to other that could be classified as cults with, with some good meaning people, but I'm, I'm always respectfully declining because I'm not interested in jumping right back into a new dogma. Mm. So I, I, feel, I feel like an unsigned free agent now, to borrow the sports reference, that I don't really have my team and I don't identify as agnostic, atheist, Christian, Buddhist, but I'll draw from all of those. And Buddhist teachers have actually been a huge influence to me. The book Whole Again that I mentioned, it introduces some Buddhist concepts that led me into some Tara Brock, Ram Dass, some Alan Watts, and the likes of those teachers that would be probably classified as Buddhist. Mm-hmm. But I I like to think that truth is so much bigger than any of these movements. And so within them, you can find these tidbits of truth where I, I try not to get stuck is in the space of belief where I'm holding on to that belief, getting stuck in kind of confirmation bias and always looking for what it, what confirms what I already believe. But I, I like staying kind of open to new information and not just signing up for a team. And so I, I do recognize that I forfeit some sense of community by doing that because the nice thing about being in an environment where you have a team and you have your stream and you go to your weekly meetings as you get community out of that. So I, I have felt a little bit of that absence, but otherwise it's, it's been kind of a fun journey figuring things out for the first time here. Yeah. I imagine it's, it's exciting. It's probably thrilling, probably a little bit risky as well, you know, not having a, 
like a safety net, but your brother invited you to go down to Puerto Rico. Did Is he similar in the sense that he, he has sort of gravitated away from the family's indoctrination or is he, because he, you said he, he's making a movie, is he kind of wrapped up in that and, and maybe even like create, because I mean, Mel Gibson has quite the reputation. Is he making like Christian films and, and things like that? Like, how does he feel about your, your, your sort of exile, so to speak? Yeah. So he went through his own version of it. And like, I mean, I, I don't want to like go too far, like into his story to, to tell kind of situation, but I mean, he, he definitely had moments where he was pushing against everything that he had grown up in and even more intensely than me and like telling her parents directly, like, I'm not a Christian anymore. Like, I don't tell them that I don't tell my parents that because if I do, then they're just going to come after me harder. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just kind of let things lie as they are, but yeah, he, he kind of went the direction of agnostic and was reading a lot that that kind of was this catharsis for him with some life experience he was going through. But he the movie that he was acting in and, and a part of in Puerto Rico, that was about three years ago. And since then, he's gotten married, he's had a kid, and he now works with my parents' church producing some of their video content. But I am able to have the conversations with him at least. And that like with both of my brothers, because I have another brother that like runs a like creative agency for churches and has built a great business out of that. But even though they wouldn't agree with me on all of it, and maybe they're still more attached to the person Jesus than I am and wouldn't be quite as esoteric as I can get on some of this stuff. But yeah, their their journey's been a little bit different and that they're a little bit more connected to so. Very, very fascinating. I recently have been listening to some interesting podcasts that Recluse has put together on his podcast, The Farm, about right-wing Christian groups, their connection to certain, well, conspiratorial (laughs) events, I'll say, and then uh, to balance that, some other podcasts about sort of more left-leaning fascism that's coming in through the establishment. It's just very interesting how both have their their home in Christian certain Christian groups. The the main overlying goal being fascism, not 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 right. one particular party's. It's it's just like they're wearing the cloak of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, but really they're more of a dominionist, which is like this idea that, you know, God is the is a true governing force and we should all live under some sort of God, sort of biblical law, God-ordained yeah, law. Yeah, theocracy, right? Yeah. 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 Very synchronistic. I don't want to go too far down that tangent, but, I mean, it, sound, it seems like from your... Um, prompt where I asked you a few pre-interview questions that you've been interested in more of like the new age, more of the esoteric mystery school flavor of spirituality, I'll say. Because Christianity, you know, it does does border in, in some of these things 
itself you know they just don't publicize it very much you know I, there, there's equal esotericism right. within christianity christianity so i'm curious like did you get any inkling of that during your upbringing or is this all kind of new to you like are you sort of seeing this with like that perspective of like oh this is how the christians interpret it or was it more like you know all of that was sterilized from what you we're learning and, and now it's it's all new and fresh. Right. So the type of Christian church that I grew up in would be probably easiest most easily classified as charismatic. So they would have revival services. They'd have people slain in the spirit. They'd have purported healing. I actually there's a podcast called Heaven Bent that goes into the Toronto Airport Vineyard revivals. And I actually attended those in Toronto. And I mean, people speaking in tongues, which is something Terrence McKenna talks about, that actual phenomena. But they would they would have people that claim that gold dust was falling in the auditorium or that their feelings were turning to gold. And I, I listened to this podcast because I was so intrigued. I mean, it was after I'd, I'd left the environment I grew up in. And the the person who's hosting the podcast went and interviewed all these people trying to figure out if any of this stuff was real. And actually couldn't find anyone that could verify some of this real stuff. Although when when I was a kid, I remember being 15 and a kid came to church and we would pray for healing and I prayed for his arm that was broken and he went to the doctor and his arm was healed. Like, and there was no explanation for that medically because it was like fractured and he had the x-rays and he took the cast off and he was fine. And so I, I do have these kind of anecdotal types of situations like that, that it seems like we were touching on some real stuff. And something that has been interesting to me is coming across the works of people like Joe Dispenza like his book, Becoming Supernatural, where he talks about these events where he has five or six people sit in the front row and then the rest of the auditorium focuses their energy on them and that these people have health impact from there. And then getting into some of these kind of esoteric texts or getting into the hermetic texts and this idea of like everything is vibration and mind before matter and these concepts of mind and and thought and belief being more real than the natural world we see around us and that neurology is actually now the science on on it is actually coming around to confirm some of these things and everything that we see with our eyes is an illusion and that there is an actual material aspect to what we think, what we believe, and the words that we use, that all of these have an impact on our surroundings. So then I start to think of these kinds of experiences that I've had in the past and wonder, were we just using some kind of the universal law? And we thought it was because of a subscription to a specific deity, and maybe it is that, I don't know. And I just I just know a lot of what I grew up around wasn't necessarily real. So I'm I try not to throw the the baby out with the bathwater, but I I think that there definitely has been some sterilization like you were mentioning in Christianity and taking out a lot of the weirdness because I remember as a theology professor doing that myself. Someone asked about the Nephilim and you 
you just have a quick answer for it that kind of shuts the person down. Whereas if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were discovered in what, the, the 1940s, and then they weren't actually released to the public until the 90s. And so there was this long period where they didn't even release the scrolls to the public. Why weren't they doing that? And who oversaw the Dead Sea Scrolls and was holding the power to it? Well, the Vatican was. And then you have the likes of John Mark Allegro, who was one of the people there actually interpreting the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then he writes his book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, and says that Christianity was a psychedelic cult based on fertility. And the Nephilim, psychedelics, and then you have all of these books that didn't make it into the biblical canon because of, again, the Vatican and Roman rule that said, oh, we don't need the book of Enoch. We don't need the book of giants. We don't need the book of Judas. We don't want any of these. Let's leave these ones out. And it seems like what they were trying to do is take away the esoteric origins of Christianity, because as much as people in Christianity will say, oh, these Eastern religions, like they're, you're going to mess with some weird spiritual stuff. Christianity is an Eastern religion. Where was it birthed? In, in Jerusalem. And that's in the East. And it comes from an Eastern religion in Judaism. But I, I feel like Christianity tries to sterilize, westernize, commodify Christianity to make it really clean, nicely packaged, to make it so it's not messy and, and doesn't cause issues. And they can get your 10% of your income and they can control your behavior and tell you that they are the source of God. And as your pastor, they're going to tell you what's right and wrong. And these kind of weirder aspects and the, the Cabal, Kabbalah-type teachings and these kinds of Judaism aspects that really still have a place in modern Christianity that would so maybe come through the quote-unquote filter of, of the cross or filter of Jesus. That I think that modern Christians don't want to deal with the mess that that would make and putting that much power into the people's hands. And so I, I am and some of the, these histories and i mean people even talk about moses and when moses had to take off his shoes because this this ground is is holy this is hallowed ground that there was an acacia bush bush burning there and that there's psychedelic properties to that and then what was really going on with the ark of the covenant and people talk about it like it was a nuclear reactor or that there was some kind of energy that was harnessed with it. And I I think I, I grew up so much thinking that the Bible's absolutely true. I believe then plenary verbal inspiration, meaning that the Bible's inspired down to the choice of, choice of words that you can't remove or add anything to it, like the book of Revelation says. But then what about the, the book of Enoch? What about the book of Giants? What about these books that Christianity took out? Like you can't take anything out now that we've already taken things out is kind of what modern Christianity says. And if you actually even go back to John Calvin, he didn't think that the book of Revelation should be involved in the biblical canon. Or Martin Luther didn't think that the book of Revelation should be involved in the biblical canon. And he invented this, this push away from Catholicism and to the Protestant sects that now exist. 
And he was saying that revelation shouldn't be there, that he didn't feel like it belonged. Well, that's a book that says you can't take anything out. And so if you take the book that says you can't take anything out, then can't you take more out? And why do we really believe in the writings of Paul? Paul seems like a dick to me, honestly. <laughs> like, and well, it is. I would have said that growing up. I would have been. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, no, yeah, well, of course, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt. And yeah, no, it is fascinating. I've heard Michael Hoffman, who spent a great deal of time looking over these things, make really interesting assertions about Paul and his place in the writing of the Bible. I'm curious. You know, the Calvinists, you know, wanting to take out the book of Revelations, this is sort of ironic considering that they believed that, you know, the apocalypse was upon them and that they were ordained by God to bring this sort of judgment, this final judgment onto their time frame, right? To bring it into fruition during their existence. At least that's what I've ascertained through my research into the various groups that settled here where I live in New England. But I'm curious to go back to something you said earlier where you'd have sort of like a quick response for a comment question like about a Nephilim or or maybe another subject that's considered maybe fringe within theology. Was this instructed for you to deal with this sort of objection from students in that manner, or was this sort of observed like uh, that you you kind of learned it? So a, a lot of the way that these kinds of organizations work is they don't have to say things always explicitly that they can infer it. So I was never told I couldn't date. I just inferred that the way that I made my parents happy and the community happy and did well and thrived within the community was to not date and to like maintain sexual purity and to really focus in on scripture and that kind of stuff. So it would be the same kind of thing with the Nathalie where I wasn't told I couldn't say that, but that's, how I was taught. And so I, I took in the same type of thought and it was always like, Oh, don't worry about this weird stuff. That stuff doesn't actually matter. What matters is how we run the church today and let's focus on the important stuff. And so how they would go into it. And one thing I do appreciate about the way that was raised is that it gave me a fascination with words and going into the Greek and the Hebrew, the original text. I was always pulling out a lexicon, all these interlinear Bibles where you're seeing the English word next to the actual Hebrew word or the Greek word. It gave me a a respect for languages and the differences between languages because Greek is this really medical language and how precise it is where Hebrew is painting more of these word pictures. But they would go into the etymology of things and say, okay, so it says the sons of God got with the daughters of men. Now, the sons of God, that obviously means the seed of Seth, who was the good seed, instead of the seed of Cain, which was the bad seed. And so what it's saying is that the seed of Seth, which we'd classify those as the sons of God because they followed God's word and walked with God. And then the seeds of Cain would have been the, the daughters of men. And so that's what it was saying, that the sons of God, the good seed, mingled with the bad seed. 
And I've, I've actually, there's actually some Christian authors. There's this one, I, I believe his book is called The Unseen Realm, and I'm spacing on his name. But he goes back to the etymology of it and says that anyone tries to claim that it's just the 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 seed of Cain copulated with the the seed of Seth, that's not accurate. The phrase of God was never used for man in the Old Testament. It was always used for angels. And so clearly, if you're going to follow the biblical precedents, then you would come to the conclusion that they were talking about angels or demons having sex with women and then the children being born as giants. And so I, I think that there are some open-minded Christians out there, but uh, the way that I was raised was to say, oh, that's just weird stuff and that never happened and angels can't have sex with humans. Hmm. Seems like a sort of secularization or even maybe political politicization over time right to to remove the the all-encompassing understanding and kind of focus in on the moral dogmatic components that seem to prop up immoral institutions in a, in many different ways but i got to say yeah. you know you made the intention of attempting to enter the pod space, and I'm already considering making this a main episode, if that says anything about you as a podcaster. You're very well-spoken. Your story is incredibly interesting, and, and you, you seem to have a very well-rounded body of, of you know understanding from your many experiences. I don't know how, how much time you've spent since you sort of we'll call it your exile but uh, i do yeah. i do want to i do want to get into that a little bit and i'd really like to just stick with like the conversation we're on and and learn more about you and get your thoughts on you know where christianity the new age these cults american politics like where they all fit in i know you might not be an right. expert per se but but i think your perspective is fascinating so so yeah, if you want, we could talk more about the like the strategy advice side of things afterwards. I know that's kind of a part of this, yeah. but but yeah, I think you got what it takes, man. So, what what is it that compelled you to live in the car? Just finances? You just couldn't afford? Like, did your family help you out when you kind of decided you were going to you know leave your marriage and and uh, you know change your lifestyle what 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 was that period like yeah so my my parents were helping out and my brothers like i would i would say with my brother a little while in, in los angeles while i was working as a stylist because of course it was out of los angeles and then i was doing that but it they they were just kept trying to cast a demon out of me and i kept trying to tell them like i wasn't demon possessed They'd be speaking in tongues really loud outside of my door. Like one time I I left the house after having like a verbal spat with them. I came back kind of early and I noticed that my doorknob was like wet, but it was oily. And then the first thing I did was reach to the top of my door to check if that was oily too. And it was. I went in my room and it found like in all the corners and all over the room that they had anointed it with oil. 
and found out that there was like a, a bunch of pastors that came over from the church and went into my room and anointed it with oil and were trying to almost perform an exorcism on my room. And at that point, I just, I didn't want to be around that anymore. I didn't want to be around that kind of constant pressure. I was under constant stress about it. And so I just left. I just got in my car. I didn't have anywhere else to go. And I, I just moved all my stuff into my car and I left. Wow. So did you stay in, in California or did you decide you were going to travel? How far did you want to get? Like how much distance did you, did you think you needed? Like, I mean, yeah. are you still like going to family parties and things like that? Family gatherings at this point in time? Or are you, are you totally like MIA? Right. So this was it. So I only spent three months in my car, fortunately. But during that three month period, I would talk some to my brother still, but had no contact whatsoever with my parents. So I, I wouldn't come around to see them at all. And I had to stay in San Diego because I have, I have three amazing daughters and they're the most important thing in the world to me. So I wouldn't think of being too far from them. Otherwise, I'm, I'm sure I would have like fled the country. <laughs> to start over because when you lose all your friends and you lose your job, you lose all your money. My ex-wife took all of her furniture to down to my toothbrush and pillow while I was in Puerto Rico. So I came back to not even having the toothbrush. And when you need all of that, it's like, you just, you want to see new faces, right? You want to get somewhere else. And so, I mean, if it weren't for my kids, then I, I definitely would have gotten down to the state. But I, I just always stayed close to them because I, I didn't want them to have to feel the pain of it the way that I felt it. So I tried not to share any of it with them and just put on a, a smile and, and be present with them during the whole process. Right. Yeah, no, I don't blame you, man. That's really tough and, you know. I don't know how old your your daughters are, but, you know, my parents are divorced. So it's like, it's definitely relatable, you know, as, as a father, not a father myself, but I'm sure as a father, you, you want to be there in their lives and, and have have some, you know, control or or influence is probably the better word. But, but yeah, man, that's, that's very, very tough you know with with this culture that we're in it's very isolating you know did you have friends that that you made early on like have you reached out to people that are in similar positions like i I, i've heard from a few even past guests and people i've met since podcasting of like certain communities of people who are kind of ex cult members that i don't know if you would consider you know your upbringing completely a cult like you didn't necessarily have to like escape at midnight but you you did i mean you right. you, you really yeah, did escape i had to give up everything yeah you know? i mean you sacrificed yeah. your whole your whole life to to do what you're doing now man so three months in you're out of the car you move into where you're staying now or or a place and, and yeah you're doing so better yeah, I went back with my parents because that, that was the point where my dad got cancer. Right, right, okay. And so 
to like be with him during the chemo treatment and everything. So he made it through. It was, it was kind of wild with him getting cancer because in the environment that they're in with kind of the faith healing, they don't believe in speaking negative. And so I really wanted to talk to my dad about death because um, he had pancreatic cancer, which has a, like less than 20% survival rate. And so I thought for sure he was going to die. And he wouldn't talk about it because everything is like, I'm going to make it through. I'm gonna, and I look back and I'm like, wow, maybe that's why he made it through is that he had that kind of mindset. But I'm really with all of it. I'm thankful for it. Like I'm thankful that I went through that hard of a time and I'm thankful for my childhood because I don't know how I'd be who I am today. I don't know how I'd have my three amazing daughters. Like if it weren't for the path that I came through and it definitely was really hard at times. And, I I do eventually, I'd love to start some kind of center or, or some kind of place to help people go through transitions back into the world and being able to get out of these kinds of environments that maybe they weren't officially in a quote unquote cult under the dictionary definition of that or something that the populace would classify as a cult. But some of those things that get so buried in your subconscious and it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of help. Like I ended up getting into a study program with a counselor. I couldn't afford her rate and they were doing this study program out of Japan and I qualified for it. And it just happened to be the type of therapy that was talked about in that book whole again by Jackson McKenzie and which is like somatic therapy, dealing with your emotions, locating them in your body and going through that therapy, I don't know how I would have done it without that. The, the kinds of things that happened in my life while I was in that therapy. And at the same time, I'm reading the Joe Dispenza stuff and I'm living with my parents. My dad has cancer. Things are so weird. We're not fully like past our beef. And I'm, and Joe Dispenza is talking about manifesting things. So I write on my mirror, three bedroom, two and a half bath open concept, updated kitchen, cute bathroom, enclosed backyard so the kids don't get out, three-car garage. And I'm writing this kind of house that I'm, I'm wanting to live in. Within three months, I was in that kind of house. And the rent was more than my income. And there was no reason why I should have been able to be there, but the company I was working with just decided to pay my rent. And here I am living in this beautiful home all of a sudden and wondering how this even happened. Like how I was able to manifest this. And I ended up living there for a year toward the end of the year there. I began to feel that they weren't going to be open to renewing the lease and continuing to make that payment. And I ended up having a psilocybin experience where I I took seven grams because I'm, of course, I'm listening to Terrence McKenna and Graham Hancock and they're talking about a heroic dose. And I'm thinking, I, I got to do a heroic dose and, and go through some of this stuff. And I, on that experience, which is a whole long story, but I, I really experienced everything that I was going to go through in the next few months where I ended up losing the house and ended up losing my job too. But in the process, I had already experienced it on on the mushroom like it had already given me the preparation for that and so i got through 
it didn't crush me. It didn't make me fall apart or like go back to zero. I was able to find a living situation with my brother and his wife, which wasn't the most ideal to me, but it also brought up like maybe part of the reason that I ended up losing that space I hope so much for is that I really feared that I was going to lose it. And I got over the fear of hell, which was so embedded in me that when I was leaving that cult-like environment, I was having hallucinations and I was seeing things like, and this is not on psilocybin, this is sober. And I was seeing things, but I, over the course of three years and through all the therapy, got through that. But I realized that there are all these other layers of that fear that I have inside me, fear that I can't accomplish, fear that I'm not a self-starter, like I can't start a podcast like everything else that I've started, like hasn't really worked out. And maybe I'm just not good at doing something on my own. And I'm not good at self-promotion, all these disqualifying kinds of phrases that I'm, I'm using internally. And I'm those thoughts, maybe they are creating my reality. And maybe the fear that I had that I was going to lose my space is why I lost my space. But I'm in a space now that like I, I have a space for my kids. Like I, my kids are loving it. They love living with their, their cousin and their aunt and their uncle. And I, as I left that old job, I, I got let go. Like just one day I got handed a letter from someone new and my best friend was the CEO of the company. He didn't even tell me he was letting me go. Just the news hire came in and handed me a letter saying it was done. But I, I, I was driving home thinking I'm free. Like I'm free. I'm not locked down to this desk anymore. I'm not locked down to this job that I don't really feel fulfilled and like I'm chasing my passion. And I have to confront the fear, the fear that I'm going to lose what I have, the fear that I can't accomplish, that I can't move forward, that I can't self-start, that I can't self-promote. As long as I'm afraid, I'm going to be self-sabotaging and I'm going to create that kind of reality in my life. And so I decided to snap out of that. I ended up actually reading Bob Frizzell's book, Nothing in This Book is True, but it's exactly how things are. And I read it at the perfect timing because I'm so intrigued by the UFO stuff, but then it gets into sacred geometry. And I'm like, okay, you tricked me into reading this with all the UFO stuff, but I'll, I'll read through it. And then it goes into somatic stuff. I'm thinking, wow, like this is how my journey went. Like I had to go through this getting in touch with your body kind of stuff before I could actually heal. And it goes into healing your parental relationship. And these kinds of concepts ended up being really transformative for me and getting me back on track and realizing that I still had more of this fear to overcome. And so I'm going through and trying to manifest this stuff. I wake up and there's seven or there's eleven thousand dollars in my bank account that I had had some commissions that came through that I didn't know I even had as deals coming through from the job that I just got let go of. And they still paid me out 11 grand. And so I'm really saying, oh, I don't have to go get a job right now. I can actually think instead of fearfully, I got to go get a job right away. Like I got to provide for my kids. Like I got to make sure that I can pay rent. Like I can't believe all this is happening to me. Instead of telling that story that all these bad things are happening to me, being afraid that more bad things are going to happen to me. I started thinking, what if good things are happening to me? What do I actually want to do? What's the life that I actually want to live? How can I create that internally in my mind? How can I think on that? How can I feel into that? How can I be in full belief that 
these kinds of things are going to come to me in such a way that my actions line up too. And I start to make progress toward it. Maybe I fail along the way. Maybe I try to make a podcast and it's complete horseshit. Like who knows, but I have to try. Otherwise nothing's going to happen. So I have this buffer and then another check comes through and I'm like, wow, like, I guess now I got to go buy equipment and give this a shot. And, and this was all, very recently, I imagine. Otherwise, you, you're you're procrastinating because you sound yeah you sound well equipped mentally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's over the last month, and so where I'm at right now is just purchasing equipment. I've I've been very talking cool. to a friend who's like an audio engineer, and that's when I I booked this session with you is because I figured let me get some good advice and and figure out the best route to go into it. But yeah, I I hear you. Like I. I do plan to get moving and move forward on it, but it's, yeah, it's been a little less than a month. Well, that's wonderful, man. Yeah. You, you mentioned Bob Frizzle, who's recently been on my show. And mystically, I found his book while I was on a sort of exile of my own in 2020, sort of coming to grips with the fact that I was 27 years old and still living with my parents who had never really, I don't know, fulfilled at least my <laughs> expectations for a foundation right. to, to become what I wanted to be. So it's very much the onus has been on me and, and being a sort of procrastinating slacker for many years, I can relate to your <laughs> your feeling of delay. And, and that's so cool that this synchronistically sort of aligned for you the finances to do so and then you obviously have an audio engineer friend who can can give you the word on on what to to get and what to not get i think there's there's no reason why you shouldn't start a podcast man i mean the bob frizzle thing is certainly a touch point for me you mentioned the merkaba in your intention in the pre-interview questions and or at least a goal that you're setting to create a Merkaba. How has that gone for you? Have you had any success? I mean, was you, you mentioned the money part of the manifesting maybe being connected. Was that kind of the Merkaba effect, you think? Or have you not created the Merkaba yet? What what in your mind is it gonna take to do that? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't. I don't think I have created one. <laughs> like I, I've, I've been in a place a little bit of like spiritual frustration because like I want to experience something very real because of the type of upbringing that I had and just wanting to know that there's something real out there in general. And so I've I've been like really going after near death experience stories, and that really helped me a lot with releasing the fear of hell because when you read these NDE experiences, so few of them involve hell. Most of them involve the same thing as psychedelics, which is this feeling of unconditional love and this feeling of all is one, or at least that things are much more connected than we think. And so, yeah, I, I haven't mastered the Merkava, but it, it's been really intriguing just how it pops up and how you begin to see these symbols. And I'm, I'm reading through Bob's book, and at the beginning of every chapter, he has the flower of life. And I actually have the seed of life tattooed on my elbow. And so each time that I'm seeing the flower of life, 
I'm seeing the seed of life inside of the flower of life and thinking, how wild is it? Like, I didn't even know why I got this tattoo. Like, I got it because I wanted to get like a rose in an abstract way. So I'm like, what's an abstract flower? And the artist was like, oh, you can do this. So it's like, that looks cool. Not realizing <laughs> I'm getting sacred geometry that's going to tie into a book that I'm reading two years later. And that would kind of show me more of the deeper meaning. But yeah, I don't, I don't really know that much about the Merkabah. I'm, I've been trying to practice the breath work. And then when you're looking at breath work, it's like, which discipline do I go for? And do I go the Wim Hof route? Or do I download an app? Do I follow a YouTube video? Bob has an interesting practice with it where it's not as painful as some of the other practices where you're having to hold your breath for really long periods and really have that pain. Like you have to breathe, but the visualization stuff is, it's pretty challenging and to actually go through it from the book is a little bit difficult. So I was looking into Bob's program because he offers like a a training program where he takes you through the breath work for 12 weeks. And that's something I'm still considering going through so I can hopefully develop the Merkaba or at least get deeper down that path. Mm. Yeah, I, I think wrestling in high school sort of did that for me pushed me to <laughs> to the brink of of being able to breathe and and funny enough i was learning a lot about this kind of stuff at that age i didn't have the understanding i do now but definitely dipping my toes in the water and you know one thing that i was sort of reconciling when i was that age was hell and this idea that there's some sort of eternal damnation because when you grow up mm. East Coast Catholic, there's sort of this infer inference, you know, that, that that you're given that the certain road in life can lead you to ruin, so to speak, right. and and you know when you you learn about the sort of new age concepts about the afterlife, karma, even which isn't necessarily new age, but definitely influenced the new age movement you sort of i don't know i i was relieved in a certain sense and then after some years of sort of naively wandering through that information i started to become a little bit suspicious and maybe step back and and said okay i I do believe there's an afterlife i do look at the the nd experiences as a, a valid evidence for that but there's some things within the new age movement that i've grown suspicious of you know and and that right that's hard to to reconcile and and i i think like you know one of the things that people talk about is this like lower dimensional entity right these beings that are Mm. are below us somehow and that you know maybe they i'm speaking from my sort of speculative opinion like this is what i've come to believe about this is like there are beings who maybe were human at some point who through dastardly deeds reincarnated to a lower plane of existence as a, a a ghost who's maybe like trapped for some time and unable to come back and to live a human life. I mean, it's sort of an Eastern 
concept, right? This sort of wheel of reincarnation, and you sort of reincarnate into something greater or worse, depending on your morals and actions in this lifetime. You, you said you sort of became disillusioned with this concept of of hell. Was that because of like the implied shame that they sort of stress on you with the kind of upbringing you underwent? Like, was that do you think it was now that you've done this sort of som- somatic emotional uh, therapy? I don't know if you you can say definitively you've healed everything, but you you've started the work, right? Do you think right. that 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 fear of hell was really more of like an emotion that you were sort of plagued with, like this shame? possibly for things that you've done that are perfectly normal that every modern American teen probably sure. does that, that, you know, people who grew up in sort of sec or really strict sort of environments, you know, they, they gather, build up this tremendous amount of shame. Do you think that hell was kind of like the, the touch point for those feelings? Like it was a word that, that sort of, people would use in conjunction with those feelings and, and that kind of built up over time? I mean, shame definitely was a big theme and was really intense in the environment I grew up in. But if I told you that I was going to torture you, you'd be scared. If I told, I told you I was going to torture you for a month, you'd be more concerned. If I told you a year, you'd be thinking, like, how can you handle that? That's a very long time. And so I told you you're going to be tortured forever without end. Like, you're not going to die. I'm just going to keep torturing you. That is very intense. And if you really believe that, you believe it totally and completely that that's a possibility then you can control someone and tell them to do whatever you want to get out of that. And when I hear stories about people on their deathbed, because we used to tell them in sermons where it'd be like this, this person was on their deathbed and before they died, they prayed and they gave their life to Jesus and they just, they got out of hell. And now when I look back on those stories, I think that's really sad that fear was used at the time of a person's death so strongly that they went against a whole lifetime of belief. And maybe there's a beautiful side to it that they're trying to reconcile. They want forgiveness for things they've done wrong. And I think that part is very beautiful. And the getting rid of the fear of hell to me is not about living however you want to and the sense of like doing bad things to other people. I think that all comes back to bite you in the butt always. And I don't think that's quality of life in general. I don't think it's the best way to do life no matter what your beliefs are. I, I think that it's a very constricting way to live is just to selfishly take everything. But this idea that we have to be so afraid that we're going to have eternal hell and torment that it's really sad to think that that's some people's experience on, on their deathbed, that they're made really afraid. They're at least sad to me. Mm-hmm. And so much of my life was spent that way. There was like this fear that I hope when I die, that I die at a good spot between me and God. That there no problems. And so I don't 
go to hell and get tortured without end. And so it was just direct fear, like debilitating fear. Like then I had panic attacks and I would go through stretches of my life where I was super depressed and couldn't function. And it limited my, my belief system to what I was told by the organization and by what their interpretation of scripture was. Because if I didn't believe that stuff, and I didn't believe with my heart and confess with my mouth that I could possibly be tortured forever. Yeah, no, that's, that's a whole other perspective. I mean, I don't know, growing up in, with public school and, and, and television and even the internet at certain periods in my life, like when, when I was hit with the concept of, of hell, it was sort of easy to, you know, rationalize it away given the you know amount of secular information i was exposed to but yeah i can imagine if you're if you're growing up with that as a reality that there's a sort of community consensus towards wow yeah that's that's a whole nother thing i mean here in in the east coast catholicism is sort of like you know, they'll shame you for your bad deeds, but it almost feels like a car wash in the sense that like, yeah. you know, they're like, yeah, we all know cars get dirty. Just come on and get a car wash, you know, like. Yeah, do your confession. Yeah, it's it's it yeah. feels really like sort of commercialized almost to a certain extent. I mean, literally commercialized. There's a basket that goes around the, the during the church service, so. You know, it, right. there's a financial incentive for sure. But yeah, it, it's it's interesting to think, you know, maybe these are vestiges of a more ancient pantheon of ideas that would be more similar to maybe some of the Eastern concepts that haven't been bogged down by politi- political conflicts as much. I mean... I, we can't say that a hundred percent absolutely, but in certain cases, there there are examples of cultures where they've concurrently lived in a peaceful, unaltered environment, and and have these sort of mythologies that seem to be across the world. And then we get to we get to the fertile crescent, the cradle of civilization, as we're told. And there is a lot of war, there's a lot of uh, strife, there's a lot of division, there's a lot of, okay, I'm the official prophet, no, he's the official prophet, no, we're the official, you know, like this this sort of, you know, budding of heads. And I'm sure the same has gone on in every culture to, to a large degree, mm-hmm. but at least in the Christian culture that I've ex- examined, it seems like a lot of the things that are ceremonialized are like watered down versions of things that maybe have more potency in other cultures, things like divination, things like the use of psychedelics or dance or other forms of ritual. Whereas, you know, that's my experience as like a sort of East coast colonial Catholic, but people who are living maybe out in the wild West, like you or Midwest or the South 
have a, a very different experience of Christianity. But, you know, when it comes to near-death experiences and the afterlife, like what are you what are you sort of gravitating towards these days? I mean, obviously hell is not in the picture. Hell is sort right. of, I think, I've come to believe hell is, is sort of like something that you can find yourself in here in this third dimensional realm if you're mm-hmm. not careful and if you don't use that law of attraction appropriately and like your words appropriately, you know, like that idea of like, you know, someone on their deathbed is approached by a priest who's saying like, listen, I know you're a bad person. Confess right now. Like, geez, what does that do for your soul in the afterlife? Given that you're just like put through some negative self-talk, you know, for the last 10 minutes of your life, uh, it's sort of sad, you know, to, to think that that's some people's end. I, I think there's sort of like, you know, there's a moral compass that we all need to to gather and, and learn how to be right with one another. But, you know, there's a big gap in our philosophies when it comes to how we treat ourselves. You know, like we, we've spent a lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about how to treat others, but treating ourselves mentally, emotionally, you know, that, that seems to be more of the focus with the new age with the holistic approach to these subjects. So I kind of just rambled out away from my question I asked you a minute ago, but what are your thoughts on, on your death experiences in the afterlife now that you've, you've sort of gone 180, so to speak? Yeah, I, I actually had a near-death experience when I was 14 where wow. I hit my head and I died. Like, and I was seaboarding and like I all ate like a forced air. And landed it, but then there was a curve after, and I fell, hit my head, had a seizure, threw up on myself, and like I, I was out. I didn't remember anything besides like a, approaching the stair and then waking up on a stretcher in someone's garage. But my parents like sent out a prayer chain to hundreds of people that went out, maybe to thousands of people. And for years, I was meeting people that said they were praying for me, like strangers I didn't even know. And I, I would say, because I don't have any memories from when I died, like I, I wish I had this really profound experience from that, where I experienced this all this one kind of thing, or the unconditional love. But I, I would say... I loosely hold my beliefs. Like I, I don't have a dogma and maybe I will in the future, but for right now in the season I'm in, loosely holding beliefs has, has served me and not getting stuck in these heuristics or biases that state you're going to hunt out what you already believe and you're going to reject information that's new, even if it's valid based on what you already believe. I don't want to get in that kind of position with where I'm, I've come from but the belief i loosely hold is that on the other side is a whole lot of love but i i think there are people that are so determined about hell that they create that for themselves in the afterlife that that's a possibility and that there is this principle of, of reaping what you sow or karma or reciprocity and what you put out into the world it does come back to you and whatever you're sowing, you, you do see the, the fruit of that. 
and whatever you're paying forward, that there does come a time of debt and paying back that debt. And I don't think that that necessarily means eternal punishment without any kind of way to to pay that off and to do retribution and and pay your debt. I I think that I haven't done personal study on it, but I I've heard in addition to taking out some of the 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 Nephilim stuff and scripture and the book of Enoch and the book of giants that the council of Nicaea also eradicated everything that had to do with reincarnation. And if, if you know, you're going to come back, that kind of softens everything and the fear kind of softens. And so then the idea of hell being taken off the table, you're not as afraid. And then maybe you don't pay your tithes and then maybe you don't show up every Sunday and you don't go through the control that they were trying to assert over you. But I, I think that there, there is possibly like, I, I like the idea at least that if you do live your life in a way that is hateful and, and terrible toward other people, and you don't put any kindness out into the world and love out into the world, that there's still unconditional love after you pass and that maybe you're reincarnated into a lower form or into a different version that's going to teach you the lessons that you didn't learn in this incarnation. And I, I at least like that kind of thought. And maybe liking a thought isn't the best reason to believe in it, but I, I think that you can find certain evidences of that, not just in Christianity and maybe some of the things that could have been removed from Scripture, but across other religions and spiritual practices. Mm. Like isn't reincarnation, one of the most universal beliefs, like you see it in pretty much every religious practice almost. Yeah, no, it's definitely something that passes the cultural sort of universal, you know, whole, like, I think one of the determining factors for that would be like indigenous cultures, right? If, if a culture is, has not had, you know, foreseeable contact with the rest of the world, then it's fair to say that it's a universal concept if it exists within that type of culture. And yeah, definitely... Things like collective dreams, divination, near-death experiences, and reincarnation are all sort of these universal concepts that we see communicated in indigenous yeah. cultures, Eastern cultures, African cultures, Middle Eastern. You know, the whole runs the whole gamut. <laughs> right. One one of the weird books that actually inspired so much of my spiritual journey is the Inner Game of Tennis by timothy galloway which Never is a book about tennis and about sports psychology okay uh, pete carroll's had timothy galloway to speak to the seahawks and steve kerr had him to speak to the warriors and a lot of teams will bring men to help the player that is kind of getting stuck in their head or having issues but he he talks about like this way of approaching games and sports and the sense of playfulness and not getting so concerned with each time you miss or getting so excited about every time you make because those become this distraction to you. And if you're trying so hard to be perfect, then sometimes you're more concerned with protecting that perfection than you are 
just doing well and enjoying yourself and you get locked up. And every time you get in your head in tennis and you lose the fluidity that really makes you good at that sport. And I think that when we get out of flow in life, often it's that we're beating ourselves up about the mistakes or maybe we're telling ourselves that the ref isn't fair and we're the victim and that we don't have any kind of autonomy or power. And I, I like this idea because, of course, afterlife and what happens to us after we die ties into what we were before we were here and what brought us into being and how the universe came to be. And I, I like this idea that before anything was created, we were all one and that there was this all oneness. I at least like this idea and that we kind of said to ourselves, let's let's make a game. Let's let's make a stage. Let's make a way to play out this kind of experience that's different than this all oneness. Let's become separate. And that one part of us said, well, I want to be the hero. I want to save the day. And another part of us realized, well, if you're going to be the hero, you need a villain and I'll be the villain. And I, I think that this concept can get a little bit, it can feel trite to people who are real suffering and are dealing with very difficult things. And I don't ever mean it in that way, where it's like, your suffering is just a role that someone's been to play. And Hitler was just playing out a role the best he knew how. You can't be mad at him. Someone had to be the villain. I don't, I don't think that that's right to speak in that way. And I, I think really there is this, you reap what you sow, or, or at least that there is some kind of karma and things coming back on you. but. If you see like your parents, for instance, as playing out a role, and if you think even, what if I chose my parents? If you think in that way, then you start to think, well, why would I choose them? Why would I choose parents that raised me in this super dogmatic, shaming, fear of hell kind of environment? Why would I choose parents that instead of having the regular high school experience, I had this really weird high school experience where I was doing independent study. And I was in a, a Bible college most days. Like I, I, that was stolen from me, the regular high school experience. And it was really a lot of difficult days for me at that age. But maybe that's part of what made me who I am today. And there's parts of that that I can be thankful for. And maybe my parents are the only ones that could make me who I am today. And maybe I chose them. And maybe I chose them for a reason. And that kind of thinking, whether or not it's true, it's very life-giving. And it introduces a sense of autonomy and gives you back your power. And you, you sort of realize, well, maybe, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But I, there's some incredible things that I have to work on because of that. And then you begin to confront your own shadow. And instead of blaming and, and you're the victim of your life circumstance, you're the author of your life circumstance. And there's a sense of purpose behind it. Well said, man. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you, you're you well on your way to to inspiring many people. I mean, geez, yeah, you're inspiring me over here. And we set this up as a, as a dialogue. The intention of this show isn't for me to be some kind of guru. It's for us to have these two-way conversations and uh, and yeah i'm a little bit at a loss for words because yeah man it's it's powerful it's powerful what you what you've experienced what you've overcome and and how you've transmuted it to and hopefully be able to spread this 
you know, I know this is just my show we're talking about. Still small number of people listen to it, but, you know, I'm sure you're not alone in that experience. And there is a community of people out there who can relate more deeply. But I'll say you're part of this community, the podcasting community. Here's your your day. I'm wondering when it comes to, you know, next steps for you, you mentioned the Merkaba. You mentioned moving past long-held fears. You said you've seen things, but you said in your goals that you wanted to see spiritual things. What do you What do you mean by that? Have we covered that already? Can you elaborate on that further? Yeah, I I never know about that desire because, like, what we see, like, you, have you read any studies or heard the research on? how everyone, everything we see is illusion and how science is lining more with that. I've heard it parroted. I haven't read anything directly. But this idea that like seeing is believing or mm-hmm. like this kind of Thomas kind of attitude to take it back to scripture again, I guess, like show me and then I'll believe it. I don't want to be too much in that mindset. But I mean, you go back to some of these like people that we revere spiritually and they usually have these profound visual experiences. And that's just something that I've, I've desired and I've I've tried to be more open about even to myself, because I think there are certain times that we kind of diminish our own desires and we don't even want to admit them to ourselves because what if we don't get what we want or what if what we want is wrong somehow or not really what we should be focused on. But I've, I've been admitting that more to myself than I, I want to, in general, just experience or see or, or feel or, or something, connect to something that is, is bigger than me, that can relate some of this stuff that I've, I've been learning about and, and reading about. And there have been these instances of these synchronicities or these manifesting of things. And even, I think, accessing flow state and being in that feeling is is pretty akin to spiritual, even when it's in a conversation and the words are just flowing out Mm. or creatively you're doing music or even playing a sport and you access that flow state. I think that is pretty much a spiritual state that there is almost like a feeling of alignment with source when you do that kind of thing. But there's something in me that longs for something a little bit deeper somehow or a little bit more profound. And, And so that's kind of where I begin to voice that desire. Yeah. Wow. That's, you're bring, you're provoking a lot of thoughts. Have you ever heard of the Ayurvedic sort of interpretation of like the, a character or person persona and how people have like these elemental influences? Some are considered Kapha, Kapha, Sita, and Pitta, I think are the three. I'm probably messing up one of those, Siddha or Sita. And they're sort of like not one element, but a sort of like a blend of two elements each, and every person is sort of, you know, predisposed to one of those archetypes, right? And and everybody's okay. sort of unique within those archetypes, but those are like the three major archetypes if we're going to sort of taxonomize things the way we do with like species, animals, and whatnot. But I'm, I'm curious because I myself, I've, definitely can relate to that i mean i've 
probably accidentally taken the hero's dose. <laughs> so <laughs> I've had some experiences through psychedelics, but I don't, you know, I don't consider those like spiritual. I'm sure you wouldn't either in the sense that like, you know, what you're talking about with an adept or a devotee or somebody who's like a guru who has these like profound, a profound experience that they then like write about in a book or whatever, tell, tell stories about, you know, those are, seem to be divine ordained, or at least they're told as such, you know, they're, they're, those, those types of experiences, I doubt many people would blame or give credit to psychedelics for those right because because a big part of that position at least in the social hierarchy is that you know oh you you're a sort of spiritual fountainhead right so you have this sort of experience and i honestly have become a little disillusioned with that to be very specific i mentioned it uh, i alluded to it earlier but that's what i've become kind of suspicious of because you know, I'm very familiar with the psychosomatic body connection flow state magic. I think that is the tangible magic that they don't want us to know how to access because that's the that's when nature what that's when the world around you starts speaking back to you. You start noticing right. the synchronicities. You start finding mm-hmm. things that you never seen before and you start trusting your intuition and it becomes a journey and all of those negative self-talk statements begin to fade away. You know, you, you just can't exist. Right. Those two things can't exist simultaneously. I think so many people like sort of manufacture a life that's devo- devoid of flow state because they mm-hmm. stick with this like nine to five routine and i i used to think that like okay if you ditch the nine to five routine then you'll have like some spiritual guru type amazing experience you know you just have to stay on the mountain long enough and maybe maybe there is a time period you know that it takes like maybe maybe that's all it is is you got to go and be a hermit and be alone for long enough (laughs) to experience that i mean i i can't say i've done that but as far as like the, you know, by night angel in my bedroom type experience, I think those, you know, I've become, I've become suspicious of those. You know, I think the, the truth is the magic is more in our intuition. It's in our mind body connection. It's in our listening to our higher self's intuition and guidance. And, and uh, if you want to call that an angel, maybe it's your guardian angel, I think higher self is at least more universally accepted, right? Rather than guardian angel, but but that's kind of like where I've come to to find myself. And I, I I've never been like an athletic person. I just had like a, a sort of aggressive streak as a kid that was tempered with martial arts, and that's where I was like, okay, this is this is not just like a exercise this is like a mental spiritual bodily connection i'm forging here and and i really i think if if everybody practiced martial arts we'd have more (laughs) tempered more sane society i agree well i really think that our access to spirit is through the body not through the mind 
I don't think that the mind can ever get to spirit and to the other side if there is another side. But I, I mean, the amount of like paranormal and kind of odd experiences or miraculous kinds of things that happen that you hear about, there's so many of them. But I, I don't think that we can get there just through logic and intellect. But it does require intuition. It does require this physical intelligence. And we live such distracted and busy lives nowadays that, like, who who has the time? Like, there's no way that I can go to India right now. I have three daughters. Like, and they're, they are eight, six, and two. So I have a long time before I can spend a few years in India and go meet with some kind of guru. And I know a lot of people now are taking the shortcut, which is such a Western thing to do and using psychedelics to get there. But I, I don't like calling myself a searcher or a seeker because that kind of has a connotation that you don't have everything you need. That there's something outside of you that you have to go first. Like it, it's not where you are. It's not with you right now. And that you're not going to be okay unless you have it. You're not going to be happy unless you have it. And this idea that you need something outside of yourself to be happy, I don't think is a very good journey <laughs> for that hero's quest. You're going to be unhappy for the whole time. And so many times you hear that people on that kind of quest, when they do arrive, it doesn't satiate them. Mm. And I think that people that are really satiated by the hero's quest are people that enjoy the journey of it and learn to find life out of that. And so I like this idea instead of someone who's a searcher or a seeker being an explorer and that the joy is in the journey itself and the things that you discover and see along the way. And spiritually, I want to be an explorer. Then, like, I'll try these things and I'll be open that there's this kind of experience out there. And then I'm okay if I don't have it. And then I'm happy with the journey itself. But I, if there's something out there to see, I want to see it. Mm. If there's something out there to feel that is profound and transformative spiritually, I want to feel it. If there's something real on the other side, I want to be part of it. Like, I don't want to be on the sideline and just watch Netflix every day and just get through a nine to five and just get my kids through school and just take care of the chores and go about this, this kind of existence that has no attachment to that higher stuff. And I, I really think that what has been maybe a barrier to me in the past, and I keep on seeing in every book and all of these teachings, is just how much you can't access it through your brain that it really happens through the physical. And I think that something that's coming to universal consciousness or the collective unconscious to borrow from Jung is this idea that really we're, we're holding so much trauma in our body and the body keeps the score. It's a New York Times bestseller. And this, this kind of somatic stuff is coming up that our body holds a lot of intelligence. And if you go into so many of these practices, what they do is they have you do breath work. They have you fast. They have you do these things that physically bring you out of your head. And it's like you have to trick your yourself to getting past your brain and your logical thinking so you can get into your body so then you can experience something spiritual. And that's, that's kind of the route I've been on. 
but I feel like there's so much trauma that I've had to unwind from the the last 33 years because I'm 36 now and it's been a three-year journey now for me kind of exploring different things spiritually but from that first 33 years I had so much trauma to unwind it's like that trauma was getting in the way and it was holding me back maybe from a, a deeper spiritual experience and maybe that's just me being intellectual again about something that you have to get past it and it's the subconscious to experience it but it, it does seem like a theme and you can see it in Bob Krizzle's work and, and you see it and Joe Dispenza's work that they're always talking about these concepts that there's there's all this stuff locked up inside of you that if as long as you're holding on to that, you're you're not really gonna get into that kind of spiritual zone. And I I have such a heart for people in general that are going through this kind of stuff and living every day with so much baggage and they're trying to survive. And I I know for me, what happened is I got so caught in this, this kind of victim kind of mindset that I didn't have autonomy and this was all happening to me. And as long as I was just a victim, I didn't have the ability to let go of that stuff and then move on from it. I had to realize okay, I can't do anything about other people's behavior. I can't do anything about the past. What I can do something with is myself and right now. And some of those past things that come up when I went into talk therapy and I was trying to unwind them in talk therapy, I got really good at telling the story. And that's all I did was told the story in circles and come from different angles and have these epiphanies. But the real trauma was locked up in my body. And until I learned the language of being able to express feelings in my body, being able to locate them in my body, being able to regulate them, being able to ground myself. Until I learned that, I wasn't able to really let go of the fear of hell that was so deep in my subconscious. I wasn't really able to let go of some of these old beliefs and let go of some of that trauma and move on from it and take back my power until I was able to connect to it on a physical level. Wow. Well said. Remind me of this practice that you mentioned before. I called it somatic emotional healing, but there was a there was a term, a precise term you used to describe this this methodology. Yeah. So just somatic therapy in general. Okay. Uh, so there's different types of practice. I personally went through a type called AEDP. Okay. And I forget what it stands for. I always forget. It's like one of those confusing names. But it, it's basically slowing down, turning off your your critical mind and slowing down the, the thoughts and not getting so stuck in your head and getting so stuck in this story right. and telling it in different ways, but actually accessing the feelings within your body. So I, I feel like so many people have read The Body Keeps the Score, and I haven't read it personally. I'm sure it is a good book, but it doesn't seem like a lot of people take the practice away from it. And really, it does take time to develop the practice because I, I remember getting headaches through that year of therapy and, um, and feeling really overwhelmed and feeling very tired because it's like growing a brand new muscle. It felt like, like riding with your left hand or driving on the wrong side of the road or speaking in a foreign language like your muscles that are strong and that you're used to relying on, you can't. <laughs> like you have to access a different kind of 
strengths within yourself and going into those feelings, it's a whole different language and a whole different practice and getting stuck in the thoughts and telling really great stories. But I, I noticed that I'd, I'd had like chronic muscle cramps. I'd get headaches all the time, like stress headaches. And I would, I was stressed out and depressed constantly. And a lot of those broke just from learning these tools, these somatic tools and being able to connect to your body. And there are a lot of really good teachers. A lot of Eastern teachers talk about this kind of thing. Even Carl Jung, he talks about some somatic practices. Tara Brock is really good. And even some Brene Brown stuff. I know she's become very popular, but her stuff on shame, she gets into some of the physical side that can be really beneficial. So there's a tons of tools out there for learning how to connect with your body and heal that stuff. Wonderful. Yeah, I didn't want to forget to ask you about that because I'm sure people might be interested in following up and, and taking that on themselves. This sounds like it's done good work for you, man. And uh, yeah, I think this is a good point for us to uh, wrap up and maybe I could share some advice with you and we'll keep that part for the Patreon folks and everybody listening on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy feed, you just heard an episode of the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue that normally is for supporters only, but today it is for everyone. So thank you for being here and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, and like I said at the beginning, folks, this was a Synchro Wisdom Dialogue. Every episode can be found on the Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so for as little as $2 a month. We also have other tiers where you get more features, more content. I'm going to try to really go through there before the end of the year and clean things up. And I'm thinking about doing a monthly Patreon Zoom party. Uh, I've done one or two in the past, not with uh, consistency, but I've seen other podcasts it i've been a part of other podcast patreon zoom parties and it's a lot of fun when there is a host and a guest and so we're gonna figure out a fun format to do that maybe include juan from the one-on-one podcast somehow him and i have worked together on a lot of bonus content over the past year and i'm really happy to call him a friend as as well as all the other really interesting unique and kind brilliant people that i've met through this podcasting field from my podcasting peers to the many guests that i've had on the show uh, to you the listeners the supporters the people who are in the telegram and on the instagram and leaving five-star reviews on itunes and everywhere else i appreciate you can't do this without you synchro wisdom dialogue was a a concept I thought of after seeing how many people would reach out to ask me about starting a podcast. And I'd like to be able to give everybody advice. You know, I truly would. But for free, you know, it's just not logical. It's not rational. You know, I can't answer every email, even though I'd like to. So I decided, well, my time is valuable. I should treat it as such and from there I created the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue a way for you to buy 
half an hour, an hour, or 90 minutes of my time. And sometimes people who buy a half an hour, you know, end up being so compelling that we talk for two hours. So, you know, it's not necessarily limited to the time allotted that you pay for. So, you know, people might hear that and think, oh, this guy, you know, he's asking people to pay him to be on his podcast. That's bullshit, right? And I agree. I think, you know, from one perspective, a jaded perspective, sure, it could be construed as BS. But I see it as, you know, a logical step for me, considering podcasting is my primary source of income, considering I started along with Alex Sakaris, Alt Media United, a podcast cooperative. I'm invested in this subject. I'm invested in the truth. I'm invested in helping others. And I can't do that for free. Otherwise, I'll be hurting myself in the long run. I got bills to pay. I got to fix my car. You know, a lot of things going on. Um, My old car actually got taken away uh, from the bank not too recently. So, (laughs) yeah, not very happy about that. Uh, And it's weird because I sent them multiple payments, yet the latter two payments didn't go through and next thing I know there's repo guys hunting down my car so I haven't had the best luck in that department over the past few months that's why the extended outros have been a little bit uh, spurious at times but I'd like to you know focus as the weather gets colder on more content varied content and of course uh, bringing the best I can for these MFTIC main episodes because this is the bread and butter. This is what most people listen to. Yes, I have your handbook for the apocalypse and esoteric America, um, but this is what mostly people listen to. So I appreciate all of you here. My family thinks I'm crazy feed. Like I said, every episode of the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue can be found on the Patreon. If you'd like to support there, you get access to a hundred or more bonus episodes from the early days when I was doing stuff with various friends to when I started the scene extended episodes. There's only about six or seven episodes that have this like, you know, half free, half pay format. And then from there, there's some bonus episodes that, you know, for whatever reason, didn't make their way to the main feed. Bonus episodes of Illuminati Confirmed, and now bonus Synchro Wisdom Dialogue episodes. So there's a bunch of content there. All the video episodes I've been posting on Patreon lately, as well as Rockfin. So go over there, support the show. I can't do it without you. Help me keep this podcast train on the tracks. Two episodes or more a week, 52 weeks out of the year, seven days a week. 360 now i'm just listing times so anyways that's all we have to say for this extended outro thank you to everybody who supports the show wherever they do so and i hope you had a very happy thanksgiving and i hope your december is very wonderful i hope mine is as well let's all enjoy it together wherever we are in the moment wherever we are in the now peace